And so I've entitled this message, the, in, the Introduction of the Servant of Yahweh and His Mission. The Introduction of the Servant of Yahweh and His Mission. So, so why Isaiah? Why this series? And why now? Why are we going here? Um, I'm, you know, I'm sort of a simple person, and I believe that... Reg laughed at that. <laughs> I'm a simple person. I, I'm convinced that as Christians, we need more of Christ. We need more of Christ. His person, his mission, his heart, his calling, his commands, his characters to set and fix our eyes upon Jesus and to learn of him and from him is strong spiritual medicine for whatever ails us. Whether that ailing today is unconfessed sin or apathy towards the means of grace, or sadness and sorrow, or hopelessness and despair, or fear and anxiety, I am convinced that heaven-born believers will always be helped and encouraged as we set our face toward Jesus Christ afresh. And one of my favorite ways to look to Christ is in the Old Testament. As Jim Hamilton said, the Old Testament is a messianic document written from a messianic perspective to sustain a messianic hope. That to say the Old Testament is all about Jesus Christ. All of the Bible points to the scope of Scripture, which is the sufferings and glory of the Redeemer. And so why this book? Or, or what I want to do now, I'm going to, as briefly as I can, give some context, a very brief overview of, of this book. So we can have some idea of what we're diving into. And so this book is often called the fifth gospel or the gospel of the Old Testament because it is rich with messianic themes. It contains what I believe is the clearest account of the substitutionary suffering, the wrath-bearing death of the Lord Jesus Christ in Isaiah 53. This book is cited, echoed, and alluded to over 600 times in the New Testament. The book is usually broken down into two major sections. The first section is chapters 1 through 39. The second section is 40 through 66. And the first section covers the history of the southern kingdom of Judah. Remember, after Solomon was the king of Israel, the nation split. The kingdom split into two, northern and southern, Israel and Judah. And so this book covers the history of the southern kingdom from about 739 B.C. to about 686. There are some hopeful texts in this section. We read of the, uh, in Isaiah 7 of the virgin that was going to have a baby. Uh, we read in Isaiah chapter 9 about the coming son that will be wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace. We read in 11 of the, the branch of the stump of Jesse, um, but largely, this section is judgment and condemnation. We read much of the rebellion of God's people and their idolatry and the curses of the covenant promised all the way back in Deuteronomy 28, falling upon Israel. Uh, you may remember that in 722, 722 BC, Assyria came in and took away most of the northern kingdom. They decimated their land and took all of the people that were the, the, the important people, if you will, out of Israel because of their idolatry, because of their 
rebellion against the one true God. God used Assyria as his rod of judgment, he says. And in about 100 years later, in 608 to 586, same thing happens to the southern kingdom of Judah. And this is who Isaiah is prophesying to, to Judah, the southern kingdom. Uh, Babylon comes in and takes Judah into captivity in 586 B.C. So Isaiah is prophesying to Judah about this coming exile. He looks out further than that, but he is certainly warning them, condemnation and judgment is coming. You must repent of your unfaithfulness and your idolatry. In the midst of this judgment, we see the exaltation of the Holy One of Israel. Whether it is through judgment or salvation, he is glorifying himself. The second half of the book is called the book of consolation by some. It starts in chapter 40, and we read there, we begin to see the comfort of Zion. And the God of Scripture begins to assert himself to his people that he is the sovereign king, Lord, creator, redeemer, and savior, that he himself is their hope, but they must turn to him. Listen to some of the things we read in that section. Fear not, he says, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your redeemer is the holy one of Israel. Chapter 43, he says, I am the Lord, your God, the holy one of Israel, your savior. Again in chapter 43, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. And in 44, he says, Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it, and you are my witnesses? Is there a God besides me? There is no rock, I know not any. Yahweh begins to reveal that He is the hope of His people. He is the hope of Israel. And as we Go deeper into the book, we begin to read of a glorious restoration, of a day of, of peace and prosperity, of a new heavens and new earth, that though God's creation has become defiled, though His covenant people are, 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 are lost in idolatry and rebellion, that He will restore. He will forgive that He will make all things new. He will make a new heavens and a new earth where man will dwell forever in His special presence. The question before us today is how do we get from point A to point B? Point B. Chapters 1 and 2 sort of, in some ways, summarize the entire book. How do we get from the rank idolatry and the disgust of Yahweh, rejecting the offerings of His people, rejecting their Sabbaths in chapter 1, to the nations flowing to Zion, the Gentiles flowing to Jerusalem, to hear the Torah of God, the law of God, and to worship the God of the Hebrews. How do we get from point A to point B? Well, we're introduced today to a somewhat shadowy, somewhat mysterious figure in chapter 42. So please turn there now. Chapter 42. And we're introduced to the servant of the Lord, the servant of Yahweh. Now, sometimes God calls the nation his servant. He does that in the previous chapter. 
And sometimes he speaks of this servant as an individual. And if you have, I believe, a, a New American Standard or a New King James, this servant is referred to with capitalized pronouns as the translators saw it speaking of God. But what we begin to learn today is that fallen Israel and all of fallen humanity's hope rests upon this servant of the Lord. So our text today is Isaiah 42, and we'll begin in verse 1. And this is the word of God. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. May God bless the reading and preaching of His Word. Father in heaven, we do call upon Your mighty name and mighty hand, and we, we, we confess those words that in our weakness, then we are strong as we rely upon you. So God, I, I confess those words today and pray for a great measure of your spirit now. I pray that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak through your word, by your spirit, to your people. And I pray for any soul in this room that does not name the name of Christ as Lord and Savior, that you might be pleased today to grant the new birth. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So go back in time with me and put on the shoes of the Jews that have been taken into Babylonian captivity. The year is about 586 B.C. Everything that you know has been decimated and destroyed. You've been taken from your home with your family. The nation that has grabbed you has gouged out the eyes of your king. The city that you love that is central to your identity, Jerusalem, has been leveled and destroyed. And the center of worship in all that you know, the temple of God, has been leveled. And here you are in a pagan land. You've been stripped of all your possessions. You're in the midst of a pagan people that care nothing about your culture, your identity, and your God. And the people... At this time, they feel as if God has betrayed them. They feel as if God has is, is, is not been there for them as He had hoped that they would be, or as they would hope that He would have been. 
And they're frustrated. They're, they're discouraged. They're weary. They're weeping. They're lamenting what once was. And they feel as if God has, has left them. But what they don't realize is that God has actually ordained these events to take place. It is God that has used Babylon to bring His people back to repentance. We hear the words of the psalmist at this time. In Psalm 137, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung our, li- our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's songs in a foreign land? And you can hear the, the grief of the people as they've been taken away from their homeland. But a hundred or more years, God was preparing His people for these events. A hundred or more years prior, God had given them precious promises in His Word. Promises to assure them of their deliverance. Yes, physical deliverance, but far more importantly, spiritual deliverance. That the curse of sin that had long plagued them, the source of their idolatrous unfaithfulness, would finally be corrected. And we read these words in Isaiah chapter 40 in verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare, her hard service is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now the prophet speaks these words to God's people around a hundred or so years prior to the Babylonian captivity. A hundred or so years prior to them being condemned and judged by God. Not I wouldn't say eternally condemned, but by God bringing His covenant curses upon them for their disobedience. But He can say, comfort, comfort my people. Her iniquity is pardoned because God would be their hope and God would be their Redeemer. And we look today to the mission of the servant of Yahweh. The mission of the servant of Yahweh. I want to see that today under four headings. Uh, We'll see first the empowerment for his mission. The empowerment for his mission. Secondly, the objective of his mission. Thirdly, the manner of his mission. And fourthly, the certain completion of his mission. Back in our text in Isaiah 42, the Lord God says, Behold my servant. Look here at my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Now that word behold is is important contextually. If you look up the page in chapter 41, you'll see in verse 21, that there's a bit of a courtroom scene taking place here in this passage. And we have Yahweh calling the false gods of the people. He's taking them to task, really, and telling them to show themselves. Prove if you truly are a god, he says. Now look at verse 21. 
Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. If you're a God, tell us the future. Tell us the former things, what happened in the past and why. That we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Yahweh is really smacking around a bit these false gods and saying, prove yourselves. Right? Show yourselves to be something. Do something that we might be scared of you. And then look at verse 24. Behold, you are nothing. And your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. And again in verse 29, Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty winds. And then in verse 1 of 42, Behold, my servant. Behold, my servant. And he begins to unveil this servant of Yahweh. And we see then first the empowerment that he receives for his mission. Notice what he says first, my servant whom I uphold, my servant whom I uphold. And the word here that is used speaks of Yahweh having him in his grip, having him in his mighty hand. Yahweh has his hand, his grip on his people, and Yahweh here has his grip on his servant. Uh, we saw, or you can see, the previous page in verse 10 of the previous chapter, he uses this word for the nation. He says, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I will have you in my grip. I will be your strength. I will be the one that holds you up. Isaiah 42, down the page in our text, we see something similar in verse 6. He speaks here to the servant in verses 5 through 9. And in verse 6, he says, I will take you by the hand and keep you. So Yahweh will uphold his servant. He will strengthen his servant. He also says, whom I've chosen. He is my chosen. He cares for this servant. He's set his love upon his servant, and he has chosen him specifically, called him to this task. And he even says his soul delights in him. His soul delights in him. He is his servant, and as we know, the son of his love. Yahweh takes pleasure in his servant, and he takes pleasure in his covenant people. And then he says, I will put my spirit upon him. I will put my spirit, or I have put my spirit upon him. This very phrase is used elsewhere in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11, we read these words. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, who is Jesse? Anybody remember who Jesse is? He is the father of David, right? The father of David. So from the stump, you picture this stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots, a shoot will come out and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. 
That is a son of Jesse, a son of David. That's a prophecy, the branch there. Your Bible might capitalize the branch. So let me, let's think for a minute. When does the Spirit of the Lord come upon Jesus? When does the Spirit of the Lord, in His ministry, when does He receive the Spirit? At His baptism. Yeah, so let's go there. Because I think this is, this is very... Uh, helpful. Luke chapter 3. Go to Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 3. If you like to pray, I'd appreciate some prayer. I'm feeling a little bit faint. Um, so if I fall over, don't freak out. <laughs> Luke chapter 3. Now we have here the baptism of our Lord, the baptism of Jesus in Luke 3.21. It says there that all the people were baptized. And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, not like, I mean, like a dove. A dove didn't come down, but it came down as a dove or like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, what is what is happening here? The heavens are opened. We have each person of the Trinity represented here. The Father speaks. The Spirit descends. The Son is baptized, receiving the Spirit. A couple things, I think, are happening. One, His earthly ministry here is inaugurated. This is the beginning of the, of the official public ministry of Jesus. And His Father declares that Publicly, this is significant for Jesus, but also for the world, right? To see, they hear the voice of God from heaven. This is my son. Everyone sees that day that God has marked this one off, not just a servant, not just a teacher, not just a prophet, but God's own son. So his ministry is inaugurated, but also his ministry is empowered here. Now, it's kind of difficult for us to grapple with, how does Jesus receive the Spirit? Did Jesus not have the Spirit prior to this? Um, certainly, Jesus doesn't need to be born again. He doesn't need to be regenerated. He doesn't have original sin. But we read that John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit from the womb, right? Certainly, Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. So we don't want to, I don't think, see this, that he had no Spirit whatsoever, but there is an empowerment that takes place here as the Spirit comes upon the Son. Because look what happens. If you skip past the genealogy that Luke inserts and go to Luke chapter 4, look what we read. Jesus, now full, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, from His baptism, and He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And what does He do there? He is tempted for 40 days by the devil himself. Now, a long time before this, there was another test that took place. That was with our first father, Adam, in the garden, right? And he himself was under a period of testing. The tree of life was there. It was a sign for him that he could have eternal life. And the tempter, the serpent, came into the garden. And what did he do? He questioned the authority of God's word, right? He questioned God's word, and Adam failed his test, plunged himself and humanity into sin and death. And now, 
The second Adam, filled with the Holy Spirit, is tested by Satan in the wilderness. And what does Satan do? He questions the authority of God's Word. And he begins to twist and manipulate Scripture to his advantage. And our Lord, filled with the Holy Spirit, passes the test as our, our hero, really. And notice what then happens down the page a bit. After Jesus endures the temptation, we read in verse 14 that now he returns in the power of the Spirit. The servant of Yahweh is still empowered by the Spirit of Yahweh. He returns to Galilee. And in verse 16, he comes then to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. They gave him the scroll. And what book did they give him? The prophet Isaiah. And the book of Isaiah is given to him. He has just defeated Satan in the wilderness. He is filled now with the Spirit, and he stands up to read the scroll of Isaiah. And he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That, that sure sounds like our text, right? Isaiah 42. He's actually reading Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news, evangel, gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It sounds like the exact ministry that we read about in our text today in Isaiah 42. Jesus reads that text. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. All eyes on Him. Everyone in the synagogue is speechless. And if that wasn't enough, Jesus calmly sits down with all eyes on Him and says, this Scripture today has been fulfilled in your hearing. This servant, this coming one that you read about all of your life in Isaiah 61 and elsewhere, your eyes are looking at Him right now. It is the Spirit of Yahweh that will empower the servant of Yahweh to fulfill the mission of Yahweh. Now, church, there's an application here for us. And let me be the first to say that, that we are not Jesus. Right? We, we don't want to take the, the similarities too far. We are not Jesus, but you have the same Spirit. Amen? You have the same Spirit that empowered Christ working in you today and now. That means that when you open your mouth with that good news that he came to proclaim to the poor, when you speak the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God is at work in you and also in the hearer. In you and also in the hearer, whether he is softening hearts or hardening hearts. It is his Spirit in you that testifies to you that you are an adopted child of God. It is His Spirit in you that strengthens you and upholds you, that keeps you in His grip as He does His servant. It is His Spirit that is the guarantee, the earnest payment of your heavenly inheritance so that you can know with certainty that you will one day stand in the very presence of God. It is His Spirit that is building His church, that is even now using the Word that it might find a place in your heart. 
Trust, beloved, in the work of the Spirit of Christ. Trust in the sovereign operation of the Spirit of God. He is at work in you. When your adult children roll their eyes for the hundredth time when you speak of Jesus and they want nothing to do with Him, trust the work of the Spirit of God. When there is strife and enmity in relationships with those you love that you cannot heal and restore on your own, trust the sovereign work of the Spirit of God. When there is sin that you cannot subdue, that you cannot conquer in the strength of your flesh, trust and rely on that Spirit that indwells you even here now today. He is in our midst. And Jesus is empowered by that same Spirit. So we see the empowerment for His mission. Secondly, the objective of His mission. The objective. And let me get back to Isaiah 42. What does He come to do, this servant that God is introducing? Well, we read in verse 1 that He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And church, when you read nations, think Gentiles. When you read nations, think Gentiles. This is all the people of the earth that are not Jewish. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Again, in verse 4, He will not grow faint or be discouraged till He has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait for His law. Now, what are these coastlands. He, he speaks basically of the ends of the earth. Whatever plot of land you stand upon here now today, if you walk south, north, east, or west, at some point you're going to hit the coastland, right? You're going to hit water eventually. So the coastlands is the farthest reach of the piece of land that we are on. And he says, he will establish justice and the coastlands, all people, will wait or expect or hope for the Torah of God. That's a fascinating statement. In verse 6, God says, now God is speaking to his servant, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So what is the objective of his mission? How do we, how do we bring all that, distill all that together? I, I said this. His mission is the advancement of the rule and reign of God through the revelation of his word. The advancement of the rule and reign of God through preaching basically, through His Word being revealed, that the coastlands wait for the Torah of God. And notice that it says Jesus is going to bring forth justice. This is not a passive thing. It is a revealing, it is a revelation of justice. So what is justice, biblically? This is definitely a... a, a, a hot-button word and topic has been for the last few years. This word, with the adjective social in front of it, has divided much of the church in the last 
number of years as Christians are coming down on different sides of this idea of justice and specifically social justice. I think we have to say without a shadow of a doubt that as believers, we are for justice. Amen. The problem is or the issue is we want to let God define what justice is, not a certain political party. And so what is justice here? What does God mean by this servant is bringing forth justice to the nations? Well, simply, I believe here that justice is the good rule of Yahweh, the good reign of Yahweh. His plan, his principles, his peace spread throughout the world. As we just mentioned, Adam, sin has come into this world and it has brought its curse, right? God has cursed the world with sin and death. And sin has destroyed and decayed society. His glory is profaned through idolatry and evil. But through the pronouncement of the gospel of the kingdom, sin in the hearts of men will be subdued. The Gentiles, we read here, who never had God's law, will love and long for the word of the God of the Hebrews. I mean, think with me, beloved. What does he mean when he says eyes will be opened that are blind? What does he mean when he says prisoners will be taken out from the dungeon? Jesus didn't come to do away with the penal system of prisons. No, it speaks here of the curse of sin being lifted, of the enslavement of sin being loosed, of the oppression of idolatry being subdued, and the glory of Christ filling the earth as the waters cover the sea. Hallelujah. Dear brother and sister, as you look around at this world today, do you long for justice? Do you long for justice in the land? Have you had enough of sin and destruction and evil starting here in our own hearts and everywhere else? I read a, a, an account, I think yesterday, of a, of a teacher from the Ukraine Theological Seminary. And he had awoken to the building shaking where he lives and thought maybe he had just had a dream or something. This was a week or two he was retelling. And they had heard on the news that the U.S. was saying an imminent attack on Ukraine was happening. But, you know, we, don't, we hear a lot of crazy stuff in this world. And they didn't really take it serious. And he had beforehand got his wife and family out of town just in case. But the, the village or the city and the building began to get shelled and, and decimated. And he told this story. And we see, I, I know that the media is, is deceptive today and it's hard to know the truth, but certainly we see that innocent people are being shelled and killed and destroyed. And we see bloodshed. We see buildings devastated. We see people fleeing for their lives. And, and we long for justice. We long for peace to see a day where, as Isaiah says, swords will be beat into plowshares. No longer will we need weapons of warfare. Not only do we long for justice and peace in the world, but we long for it in our own hearts. As we look in the mirror and see the sin that so easily ensnares us, we see that old man so often rearing up his ugly 
head. We think we've gotten past something, and there's that old attitude. There's that old behavior. There's that old mouth of mine that I thought was put to rest. Christ is bringing forth justice to the nations. The rule and reign of God through the preaching of the gospel, hear me, is expanding exactly according to God's plan. Do you believe that, church? Do you believe that God's plan is happening exactly as He ordained it to be? That His church is growing and shrinking exactly as He ordained it to be? It's easy to look around in the West where we live and see the hard, hard soil that we minister to, the hard hearts that have heard of Christ, heard of Jesus, and are done with Him, want nothing of Him. I read some stats the other day that there's 400 million Christians in China, 400 million Christians in Africa. Beloved, His Word will prevail. Our hope is not in the kingdom of this country. We love it, but our hope is in the kingdom of God. And if God would seek to pour out judgment upon this nation, the kingdom of God will prevail, and He will make His enemies a footstool under His feet. And the nations, the Gentiles, will flock to Zion to hear the law of the Lord. Turn with me and read that in Isaiah 2. It is a wonderful text that I believe is, has begun already. Certainly is not fulfilled completely. But Isaiah 2, Isaiah 2, it shall come to pass, verse 2, in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. Now, mountains have an important role in in the Bible. Eden, the Garden of Eden, was probably a mountain. We read that there was one river and four rivers flowed from that river. Rivers flowed down mountains, down hills, right? Uh, the, the, the time when, when Moses encounters the Lord in a burning bush, he's on a mountain. The Ten Commandments are given to us on a mountain. The greatest or most known sermon Jesus ever preached was on a mountain. Jesus was transfigured before his disciples and unveiled his glory on a mountain. He was crucified on Mount Calvary. He ascended back to glory on the Mount of Olives. And in Revelation 22, we read that the throne of God is there and rivers flow down from the throne of God. And we read here that the the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations, all the Gentiles will flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law or the teaching, the Torah, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light 
of the Lord. Now, this is a challenging text to interpret. But in light of John chapter 4, which we looked at a number of weeks ago, Jesus said, a day is coming and is now here where the location of worship will no longer be relevant, where it won't, we won't worship either on this mountain or at the temple. That will be done away with, but we will worship in spirit and truth. So I don't believe this is a time when actually everyone will pilgrimage back to Jerusalem, but this is the world coming to Christ. He is the Heavenly Zion, the church, is the manifestation of the presence of God on the earth. So this has begun. The Gentiles, the nations, this would be shocking for the Jews to think that pagans would come to their God, to worship at their temple, to listen to their word. And, and God is using this in some sense to, to make them jealous, that they would return. Listen, the pagans are going to come. You need to turn back to the living God. And we see this happening today, certainly not in its full fulfillment, but from all across the globe, the gospel is prevailing. 2,000 years started with 12 men. And here we are today in Phoenix, Oregon, in an apostolic church, tracing our roots, not directly, but with their doctrine and teaching. Here we are in Phoenix, Oregon, worshiping the same God and reading the same scripture. There is a glorious future hope for the church. The servant's son will bring forth justice, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. We see thirdly now the manner of his mission. And it is not like we might expect. We know now because we're familiar with, with our Lord. But in their day, and in Jesus' day, it was shocking. Isaiah 42, verse 2 he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Now, now, now what does this mean? A reed is that little stick of grass that sticks up out of a pond or out of a lake by the shore. It's a, it's a fragile little branch and the picture there is that it's bruised it's it's hurt it's it's broken it's snapped a bit and Jesus is so gentle and show and so gracious that he will not snap that bruised reed or it's like a a, a candle and you have a a candle with a tiny wick that's left and the wax is all melted and it's flickering and if you just barely walk by the air from your body will will quench that wick, but Jesus is so gentle, so meek, so mild that he will not quench that faintly burning wick. And so the manner of his mission is one of meekness and of humility. He does not come with the pomp of a king, with regal attire, with fanfare, with a trumpet blast, but he's born in a manger. There is no heir of a warrior with Christ. He does not have a proud strut. He is not boastful. He does not flex his muscles. He's not frightening, but he is gentle and he is lowly. He does not break the bruised reed. He does not quench the faintly burning wick. Turn with me to Matthew 11, a text that we've looked at recently as we are uh, reading the book, Gentle and Lowly, that makes much of this meek and mild 
side of Jesus. Now, these are, these are um, comforting words for Christians, comforting words to hear about our Lord. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Maybe you've come here today and, and that text resonates with you. That call from Christ goes out today as it did 2,000 years ago. Maybe you've come here today and you have the burden of your sin upon your back. And you know that you have never received this rest for your soul that Jesus speaks of here today. Maybe you've sort of been drugged along by your husband's faith, your wife's faith. Maybe you've sort of just went along with the motions of mom and dad's faith. But Jesus Christ, friend, today says, come to me. All that are burdened, all that are under the heavy weight and guilt of their sin, the shame of their sin. And he says, I will give you rest. I will deliver you from that bondage. He will make today the blind see. He will today set the captives free and loose the chains and bonds of affliction. If you would come. He bids you to come. And there is one call for you, and that is to believe upon his name and to turn from your sin. As he says in Mark chapter 1, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That is a turning away from sin and a turning to God in faith. It is coming to him with an open and empty hand, bringing nothing but the sin that needs to be cleansed and receiving the precious promises of God. Come to the Savior today. All that are burdened, all that are heavy laden, and he will give you rest, he says, because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. But this is, of course, not just a call for the unbeliever. This is a call for the church. This is a call for the Christian. Beloved, he will deal gently with you. He will give you rest if you come to him. Believer, dearly beloved of Christ, are you burdened today? Are you heavy laden today? Might you come to the kind hand of the shepherd as he will take away that heavy load? And as we've been seeing Wednesday night, it is his very joy to minister to you in this way to redeem you and to restore you and to help you and to comfort you. Might you bring your doubts, might you bring your unbelief, your sorrows, your worries, your anxieties, and might you give them to Christ. And now go on a bit here in Matthew's Gospel um, in verse 14, 12, 14. Look what it says. The Pharisees went out, conspired against him, how to destroy him. In verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all 
And what did he do? He ordered them not to make him known. He didn't want to make a name for himself here. He wanted to be able to minister. He did not desire crowds. He did not desire fame. He did not desire glory. And look what Matthew says. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And there's our text. Behold my servant whom I have chosen. My beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. And he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. If you were wondering, is Isaiah 42 really about Jesus Christ? Matthew says, yes, that is the servant of the Lord. So his ministry is meek, his ministry is is mild, and it is not one of anger, it is not one of quarreling. And I, I think there's a word for us here as Christians. I think there's an application here for us as, as believers, especially those that, that like to do confrontational evangelism. I don't mean angry, I just mean public stranger evangelism. Those that are into apologetics, those that like to get into theological debates with family or on social media, that we are to emulate the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are to have a gentle, gracious demeanor in ministry. And let me be the first to say, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak at times, right? But listen to what Paul says to Timothy. He says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, yes, correcting his opponents, but with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Notice, beloved, our responsibility. Our responsibility is not to make them repent. Our responsibility is not to have the perfect answer so that we get them saved. God grants repentance. God is the one that does that. But we are to speak with kindness and gentleness, not quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. God help us. And the manner in which Christ came was shocking to the masses. It was unlike any expectation, and many of the Jews actually turned away from him because they didn't want this meek, mild Messiah. They couldn't imagine that when Messiah finally came, that he would suffer and be mocked and ridiculed and ultimately die. That was the manner of his mission. Lastly, we see the certain completion of his mission, the certain completion. Isaiah 42, again, Notice what it says about our Lord. Praise be to God for these words. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Praise be to God that he will not get discouraged because you and I get discouraged along the way, do we not? 
We get discouraged when we see people that love Jesus Christ fall away from the faith, deny the Lord that they once confessed and loved. We often doubt the power of God. We might not say it, but when we speak to that rabid person that is opposing God, we shrink back. Our trust in the power of the gospel through my feeble effort seems impossible. We see the church, from our perspective, growing and waning at times. The influence the church has apparently withering at times. And we grow faint. We grow weary. But our Lord, we read, will not grow faint. He will not become discouraged until He has established justice. Until He has fulfilled His ministry, as Matthew said, and in His name the Gentiles will hope. Look at verse 5 of, Matthew, of, of uh, Isaiah 42. This is God now. He speaks of His servant in the first four verses, and then He speaks to His servant from verse 5. Thus says God the Lord. Now, Yahweh likes to remind us, remember who you're talking to. Remember what I've done and who I am so that my words have weight. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it? I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you, my servant, by the hand and keep you, and I will give you as a covenant for the people. Verse 8, I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carve idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass that he said would, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you, tell them to you or tell you of them. There's hope here, beloved, because when God sets out to do anything, he is always faithful in his work. Amen. And he says, I declare new things and they will spring forth. They will happen because I said they will happen. The servant will accomplish his mission the lamb will receive the full reward of his suffering. We read about this in Psalm 110. You remember Jesus confounding the Pharisees says, who was David speaking of? Who was David's Lord in Psalm 110 when David says, Yahweh says to my Lord. If David was the king, who is his Lord? And Jesus is saying, that's me. Right? Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Isaiah chapter 9, we read of a child who is to be born, a son who is to be given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. His name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We read about him and his rule, his reign, his certain completion of his mission in Hebrews chapter 2. And we read that God has put everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, hear this, beloved, he left nothing outside of his control. He left nothing 
outside of the control of Christ. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. The eye is deceptive, but God reigns now. Today, Christ is King. The servant, beloved, will not give up on His mission, and thus the servant will not give up on you. The servant will not give up on his mission, and thus the servant will not give on, up on you. So Paul could say to the Philippians that I am sure of this, I am certain of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He could write to the Corinthians and say, Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord. Jesus could say, as he preached, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. He goes on to say, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The servant will not give up on his mission, and thus he will not give up on you, beloved, because you are part of his mission. And lastly, the servant will not give up on his mission, and thus he will not give up on his church. He will not give up on his church. The church is God's instrument to spread his good rule across the earth. It is his force, if you will, his his army to pronounce the ever-spreading reign and rule of Christ. Though our foes are many, and they seem to be multiplying in our day, though our numbers seem small, faithful churches can be somewhat difficult to find. Though our influence certainly has waned in the West where we live, we stand upon the words of Christ, the confession of Peter, that Christ will build His church, and the very gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Yahweh says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice on the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Let's pray.